Dave, back on January 30th, a mutual friend of ours, Mike Avery, texted me and said, hey, Ezra, you got to check out this book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. He said it's a game changer. And uh, he never really texts me stuff like that. And so I said, oh, okay, well, I I might as well do it. And went on to Amazon, got the Kindle and started reading and quickly became one of my favorite books of the year. Well, January, but it's still been one of my favorite books uh, four or three months later. And uh, one of the things I just appreciated about so deeply, I guess, was that in culture, we have the hustle and bustle of life. And sometimes we lose sight of what it really means to follow Jesus and, and what a deep relationship with Jesus looks like, the ins and outs of that every day. And um, I have like a document here of like, it's got to be 40 or 50 highlights just from this book. And so it's really meant a lot to me. And so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I think we were talking about uh, before the show, just um, perhaps the the writing is an, a needed corrective or it, it needs to be in the blender uh, of our understanding about Jesus, so to speak. But I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with Dan. Of course, I follow him on Twitter and uh, there's been quite a buzz uh, around his writing and so I'm looking forward to chatting uh, with him about, uh, about his work. Yep. All right. Let's go ahead and get right into it. It's good to have Pastor Dane Ortland on the podcast today pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church, southwest side of Chicago. Uh, pastor Dane Ortland, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you today. Well, and as we said before, um, your book, you've you've written numerous books here. So uh, you've written not only Gentle and Lowly, which we'll link in the show notes below, uh, but Edwards on the Christian Life and Defiant Grace, among others. And, and so I just want to thank you specifically First of all, um, again, your books had a profound impact on my life, so I just appreciate that right out of the gate. Oh, gosh. You are most welcome, brother. Thank you for sharing that, Ezra. Mm. Well, some in our audience will be very familiar with you. Others will not. So mm. let's just go back in time real briefly. I just always like to do this to set it up. How did you come to faith in Christ? Um, by growing up in a, in a normal family that revered Christ, normal, imperfect family that revered Christ and made him central so that uh, it felt like, what else would I do? <laughs> wow. But, uh, but revere the scripture, uh, make Jesus central, and um, do what I can with my short little life to make this world a better place and, and maybe even have an impact on eternity. So I am, I'm just profoundly grateful for giving me uh, a mother who was reading the scripture and drinking her tea anytime I came downstairs in the morning there on the couch for a dad who, uh, yes, went fishing with me and came to all my games, but who led us in prayer and modeled godliness um, and uh, siblings that I'm grateful for. So um, just n nothing extraordinary, just uh, the uh, ordinary godly family that I am profoundly grateful for. 
I don't know if you know the name Daryl Dash. Um, so he's one, one of my friends. We have had him on the podcast recently, and he just wrote. Uh, he's in the process of writing another book, and he said he has. Uh, it's the first time he said he has four Ortlands that he's uh, quoted in this book. So you have a, you have a very rich and deep family here. <laughs> that was pretty funny when I saw that. So, um, all right, I'm I'm going to read several quotes here, but I, I just want to start with this one. You write the battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ. That is getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the, into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. I want to lead with this question. How, how has your view of Christ shifted over the years to what it is today? Oh, man. Um, it's hard to capture that in one little answer, Ezra, but I, I respect that question. It, um, Jesus has gone from 2D to 3D for me. Uh, maybe in 10 years, I'll look back and say, actually, at age 42 in 2021, he was still in 2D. But the, what it feels like from recent years is that he has got, become three-dimensional. Um, another way to put it would be, this is a Jesus, actually, that I can enjoy being a disciple mm-hmm. to. Because he's not a bigger, better, smilier version of me. Uh, if he is, screw it. I quit. Because uh, I, I, someone offends me enough, the wall goes up, and I will not respond to their texts. But mm. if, uh, if, some, if I have a friend in heaven who actually, with every offense, as I bring it to him open-heartedly, I mean, it, it, it's in soft-heartedness, not hard-heartedness, mm. as I bring it to him, if I have a friend in heaven who actually is drawn to my weakness and not repelled by it, who actually where he wants to be most is in my deepest, darkest regions of shame, regret, and anguish. Mm. (gasps) That's sustainable. That's a Christ I can actually enjoy loving and not just be told to love and worship, but kind of resent it, which is how most of my Christian life, not unbelief, Mm. most of my Christian life was lived. So Mm. I feel, honestly, dude, I feel like... um, I'm, I'm sort of becoming a Christian all over again in these recent years, and, um, and I'm not going back. Yeah. Mm, uh, as let me just jump in here. You said it went from 2D to 3D. Can you maybe tell us what, a, what did 2D Jesus look like, or what, what, what were you focusing on that maybe you hadn't brought into your understanding or seen yet? What, what did 2D Jesus look like? 2D Jesus loved me. And was patient with me, and was he was constantly fighting back low grade irritation at how screwed up I am and don't get my act together. Um, and it's sort of like he kept looking at his watch, thinking, "Hey, man, you're you're a great dude, but come on, really? After all these years, you're you're not growing a little faster. You're not giving a little more. Uh, are you still that self entrenched?" Um, and, uh, and, and I had created him, Dave, really, this is what it is. I had created him in my image. Mm. I had not let the scripture, as I understand the Christian life, one way to understand the Christian life, it, it came out a little bit in that quote you read, Ezra. As I understand the Christian life, it's the lifelong tearing down of my natural view of Jesus and letting this book um, reconstruct, not tinker with cosmetically, the Jesus I'm born with thinking is there, but tear down and reconstruct this glorious Savior who is actually 
radically different than the one we, in our fallen, intuitive, natural way, tend to project there, which we can't, we don't even realize we're doing it. We can't help but project mm-hmm. him as a bigger, better version of us. You mentioned the Puritan writers in this, so I'm a little bit intrigued. I haven't dug Mm -hmm. deeply into the Puritan writers, so Mm -hmm. you have challenged me to do so uh, through this. And one of the impacts, though, as I've understood from you, is that the impacts that the the Puritan writers have had on you is to take a passage of Scripture and to think about it deeply. And actually, just that concept has been so valuable, even this morning, subconsciously, that that has really played a role. I thought about just meditating. I've been meditating on the book of Matthew and just Mm -hmm. sitting in, in... Today's Matthew five, so a little bit familiar, right? And just sitting there and meditating. Okay, what is what does mercy look like? So, how has your shifting, your mindset shifted in how you meditate on Scripture? Ugh. Let's go behind the scenes. I'd love to see how that looks like for you. Um, I am a product of my culture, Ezra, which means I do everything in a in a drive through, uh, microwave, not crock pot, kind of a way. It's just how we are. We are, we are, we're, we are encouraged at every point to do big things fast, really, really fast, do it faster, more efficient. And there's a, there's, there's a good side to that. Um, I don't want to be inefficient, but uh, I mean, I preached yesterday on Galatians 5, 16 through 26, 40 minutes on those 11 verses, totally unpreachable. I can't even begin to, to plumb one of those verses in 40 minutes. And the Puritans understood there is such profound. I was seeing, guys, I've read Galatians 5 a hundred times. I was seeing things in that text, actually a couple of different places that I wanted to linger over, but couldn't because the clock is ticking. And I and I have to hurry through it. The Puritans refused to do that. Mm. They would uh, uh, they would take a verse, and it's like when you pick up a, a sopping wet rag before you wipe the table with it. So that everything doesn't get wet, you just wring it and let the water go out <laughs> into the sink mm. first. That's what they did with a little verse of scripture. That's what John Owen took 400 pages to do with Romans 8.13 about by the spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. That needs 400 pages and you still haven't exhausted it. Yeah. So I, 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 I worry, I, I worry when I talk to a church member and they say, you know, that reminds me of the, the verse of the day that came into my email inbox today. <laughs> it's like, you, you're not being saturated. You're not soaking your mind with deep meditation in scripture when you do that. I haven't answered your question. You said, how do I do it? I'm learning. I'm a toddler in this, Ezra. I'm trying to figure it out. But all I do is I, I tried the uh, McShane reading plan, which is four chapters a day. Old Testament once, New Testament and Psalms twice in a year. I can't do it. It's too fast. It's too, the pace of it's too relentless. I take a little Old Testament passage, a little New Testament, actually two OT and one New Testament, um, a couple verses at a time. And I'm meditating on it uh, and praying my way through it. I view Bible reading as inhaling and prayer as exhaling. The one, two tandem step of normal Christian breathing spiritually. Um, so mm. I'm learning to slow down. I mean, honestly, so, so much of the insight that we get in the scripture isn't from learning Greek and Hebrew. That helps too. Mm. But it is, it's just getting a good translation and then <laughs> slowing down. Just yeah. don't read it too quickly. When you do that, do you bring in outside resources or do you just meditate on the scripture itself? I, I just meditate on the scripture. Uh, there's a time and a place for sure for outside resources. 
Um, but I just take, I mean, I, I'm in Numbers right now and in Luke and in Isaiah. I'm reading a chapter of Numbers in English. I read a paragraph of Luke in Greek, and I'm reading like two verses because my Hebrew is so bad of Hebrew and Isaiah. Um, so I just do, I'm doing what I can. It's, yep. it's probably 10, five to 10 minutes of each of those. It's not hours. I got five kids. Uh, but it's, it's doing what I can to, to stockpile my heart and my mind for the day so that I am, I'm starting my day um, up feeling loved by God and in tune with eternal realities uh, so that my 401k and number of Twitter followers is not controlling my emotional temperament throughout the day. Wow, that's awesome. So Dave. would you recommend, would you recommend, so you, you said the Puritan writers, is there anything specific you'd recommend to our audience to read? Or you mentioned sort of this uh, read, read through and pray, Lecto Divina style things. What, what, what would you, um, what would you uh, say, you know, our listeners were, were focused on everyday faith and action. Like, yeah. what would you recommend that they do? If, if say, man, I, I don't do any of that. Where's a good place to start? Well, if you're at zero miles an hour, you have to go five miles an hour before 40. Yes. So, I, so I would not say, um, well, you're, you're not doing any of this. Let's start out with an hour a day, five chapters a day, 30 minutes in meditative contemplation. No, just, just, just take one more step forward. That's all. That's all we can ever ask of anyone. No. So maybe it means you set your alarm 10 minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. I think any of us could do that. And try for a month, building in another 10 minutes. And we all read at different paces. We all take things in differently. I don't want to be cookie cutter. We're all function a little differently. And just, uh, and um, I mean, here's actually what I do. I do my three readings in the Bible. And then I read one page, <laughs> one page of the Puritans. Right now I'm in volume nine of Goodwin, 550 pages on predestination. One page. That's all I can handle because it, it's like um, it, it's like concentrate, like orange juice. It's like espresso instead of a cup of coffee. So I just take what I can. It's so it's so high octane. Um, but that's over 300 pages in a year. Uh, so you don't have to sit down and read through one of the Puritan works in a weekend. Don't don't. That, that, that sounds miserable. Just start small. Do find something good. Get Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Read. A short little book, Banner of Truth publishes it, Puritan paperback, very accessible. That's a representative taste. Read a page or two a day. And I, I think if, you're, if your heart is fresh before God at all, I think you'll read that a lot more. You know, it's interesting because I think awesome. people, sometimes people listening to this, they're saying, okay, yeah, but the average person's not going to do this. Mm. Or it's too much. And I, I'm curious, when you go back and you study how, um, let's just take the average lay person. I'm not a pastor, right? So mm -hmm. I, I attend a church and um, that's what I do right now. I've pastored in the past. And and so when we, the average person, they're saying, okay, they're not going to do this. It is too much work. Have we dumbed it down too much in the pulpit, so to speak? And do you think that people are much more hungry for deep stuff than sometimes uh, maybe say seeker sensitive churches that of that nature would would tend to let on? I believe that is true, Ezra. Yes, I believe that is true. Let's summon our people up, not bring things down to them. Now, everyone's at a different place, so we, we don't want to be unrealistic. Um, but when, when, if, um, uh, when you read The Lord of the Rings, you are being 
summoned up into an enchanting reality. And we might not track with every English word Tolkien used, but we know mm -hmm. we are breathing rarefied air. We're, we're taking in beauty. And we're actually enlarged as human beings. And we, we love it. We like that. We want to grow. We want to be deepened. So I, I agree, brother, with the premise of your question that we can, in the name of, it's well-intentioned, probably, in the name of wanting our people to be able to, to grow and to be fed something that is palatable to them, we might underdo what we think they're capable of. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I have on my wall right here 20 things I remember before every sermon I preach. And one of them is doctrine is not enough, but people do want to know doctrine. <laughs> so I want people to experience God when, when I'm preaching, but uh, they also do want to know uh, deep doctrine. So let's, let's summon them up. Yes, sir. One of the things you write, you write, the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty, right. just as the whole reason we care about effective uh, focal lenses on a camera is to capture with precision the beauty we photograph. Love the imagery of that. That's, that's just, yeah, that's just so powerful and gripping when, when I read that. And uh, I, Dave, I'm curious to get your perspective. I think that's so right that oftentimes we dumb things down. And I'll, I'll just be honest, when I've spoken in the past, and like preaching churches, I've been guilty of that where I have felt like I need to bring it down to such a level instead of saying, okay, as, as Pastor Dane just mentioned, bringing people up. Like, what's been your experience? Yeah, I was actually through the grocery store lister big. My dad sent me a survey over the weekend and said, you got to listen to this. One of the things he was saying is, you know, your people really don't need your golden retriever closer illustration and that surgery that grandma had the illustration. They really desperately need the, the God's word. And I, I just love this. Summon Excellent. our people up. Um, I, if we're really equipping the saints for the work of ministry and if we're really not trying to keep them or to keep them from being tossed in, to and fro by every dynamic, upfronty type person that comes through and says things that maybe aren't quite in the scriptures. I think that you know, in, in my in our heritage, as some of the the Methodists that kicked responsibility to people to dig into God's word and to and to summon them up. I, I just uh, man, I, I'm resonating with what you're saying today, Dane. Thank you. When you, I'm just curious to get your perspective. When you wrote Gentle and Lowly, did you expect that it would be the success that it is? And for people that are watching, I mean, uh, you know the numbers, I don't, but just on Amazon, a quick search, over 3,000 five-star reviews. That doesn't happen with a lot of books, uh, especially titled just Gentle and Lowly, right? Like that is just such mm -hmm. a simple message in, in a way, but obviously it has connected in a deep way with people. Did, did you expect that? And why do you think that it has connected in the way that it has? I have the same questions, brother. Uh, nothing I've uh, nothing I nothing I've ever written has ever sold anything. With all, and I think it's been good stuff, like quality material. Mm. It just has never moved at all, really. So I am mis I am as mystified as you are and anyone. I don't know what's going on. All I can conclude is that God had a ministry in mind, mm. and He thought. Instead of sending this message out through Paul Tripp or Kevin DeYoung or John Piper, where people could think, well, yeah, they already had a platform. I'm going to take this doofus in Naperville and blow, <laughs> blow, the, blow this message out there so that everyone knows it actually wasn't about him. 
yeah. but it was it was because God wanted to flood this world with this divine and heavenly reality of His Son's endless heart. And um, I I am I, I I'm just I have all the same I have question marks not periods to what you're at what you're saying. Now, well, okay, you're not probably not going to go there because you're too humble of a guy. But as as I'm reading this, I think so. I've you know I'm just looking at my notes. Like I said, I've got 40, 50 notes, and I typically just don't have that from books that I read. There's something very deep, I feel like, as you're going through it. And I think, as, I, as I'm listening, watching, um, that there is that thirst that people have to go deeper yeah. in the Word of God, and that there's a tiredness, I guess, of just the shallowness of, of living. And so... Let me ask this question. When you wrote this, was there a corrective thought that you had in mind that I need to correct maybe a false image of the way that Christ is portrayed in the church in the West today? Yes, I suppose so. Yes, Ezra, I suppose that I did. I, it was offered as a corrective because I needed a corrective. And these guys who'd been dead for 400 years over in England had corrected me. And I thought, wow. Maybe some others need the same correction that I have needed. Uh, I had I was in school doing Bible and theology degrees till I was thirty-one, but I didn't know this. I didn't know that Jesus. I didn't know that Jesus had a heart that throbs more strongly at my worst. I did not know that, and actually, I I, I rejected that. I resisted that. I stiff-armed that because that's what the fall in Genesis three did. It entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, among other among other dysfunctional things that it created in us. Um, it didn't. The fall didn't just uh, mean that now we break God's law. That's true, but beneath that, even more deeply, it twisted Satan's victory. There is it twisted our apprehension of actually who God most deeply is. Hmm. So yes, um, I I'm. I, I, I'm aware in of all the billions of books out there. I'm aware of a slice of a sliver of a slice of 1%. Okay, but of that of which I'm aware, I, I don't know of anyone talking about Christ's heart. I know of people talking about the work of Christ, lots of glorious books. Good grief, let's keep writing them and reading them, celebrating it, singing yeah. about it, preaching about it. And the person of Christ, Orthodox Christology, absolutely. But this is something actually that, that's different than those, not in competition with them, the heart of Christ. And we just haven't talked about it the way that generations in the past have. So we'll I wonder, just go, go ahead, Dave. No, I was just wondering if you see a connection between um, the lack of talking about some of the things you've talked about in the book and um, maybe people's reticence to spend time in the Word, you know, you know, that Monday through Saturday that maybe we think is a priority. Huh. Some of the things you've been mentioning, like, why would you want to spend time with this yeah. God who's like looking at his watch and impatient to borrow your, your, you know, I've got, I've got Ezra for 15 minutes now and I really need to tell him all the stuff he's doinking up from yesterday. And then hopefully he'll come back tomorrow and we'll straighten him out some more. Like if that's your view of who God is and what spending time with him looks like, of course you're going to struggle to get through any sort of meaningful time with him and consistency will be a problem, right? Am I, do you Excellent. see a connection? Oh, I, I think that's a very astute comment and perceptive question, Dave. If we are going through our week 
and we're skimming across the surface of the scripture. Maybe a couple of times we open it up for a little pep talk, for a for a, a verse that could go on a mug um, to give us a, a warm thought for the day. Um, we're we are going to be we're reinforcing our natural view of who God is. Mm. But if we let the scripture, if we open it up and we actually really drink it down, and as in, in whatever capacity we have, whatever time we have. We actually do absorb it and and let it rearrange, mess with our view of who God is, who Christ is. Then, um, actually, we'll find I can't get enough of this. I I need this yes. is this is an oxygen tank in my suffocating little internal universe. Um, and so I I strongly agree. Let's go directly to the book itself, because I'd be remiss if we go through the interview and we don't actually talk about some of the specific details. Let's start with the obvious one, gentle and lowly. What does that mean that Christ is that? Well, it's absolutely um, a showstopper, isn't it, guys, that in yeah. the one place where Jesus talks about his heart, one place, four Gospels, about 90 chapters of biblical material, one time he says, hey, everyone, listen up. I am now going to open up myself to you and tell you what my heart is. We know from the Bible, Old Testament and New, the heart is not just what we feel. It is that. It is actually the Bible speaks of the heart thinking, deciding, determining, loving, judging. It's your center. It's it's your motivation headquarters. That's what your heart does. It dictates all that you do in love. And Jesus says his heart. <laughs> Who would ever have guessed this? Who if our, If we had everything in the Bible... And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, it said, I am blank and blank. Who of us, honestly, who of us without knowing that verse would put those two words in there? I would not. And I might put doctrinally true words in there. I would not pick that he is gentle. He's the most non-manipulative person in the universe. Wow. He's the most tender, non-abrasive. He doesn't handle us roughly, not because he's morally mushy, but because of his heart of gentleness, he and he says he is lowly. It's the same Greek word elsewhere translated in the New Testament, humble. What does Jesus have to be humble about? Well, it's, it's his way of saying, you don't have to go through security to get to me. I am the most accessible person mm. in the universe. The Revelation 1 Christ, the one who's, who uh, John falls down in Revelation 1 because of the glory and resplendence and fearfulness of what he's seeing, the risen Christ, a sword coming out of his mouth and his hair like, you know, um, that Christ most deeply is gentle and lowly. He is, um, you don't have to take a ticket and get in line. You don't have to be put on hold. He's the most accessible, lowly. Anyone can, guys, you collapse down into Jesus. You don't climb a ladder up into him. Oh, anyone so can powerful. anyone can collapse. All yeah. you do is fall. But most of us don't have the humility to do that. Most of us want to pay our way. And he, he you, you that's not yes. how it works. If you want his heart, you open up and you simply melt and fall into it. Mm. I'll just speak personally here, Dave, you, you take it next, but I, I'll just speak personally. So Dana wrote a book, not near as successful as yours, but walking with a limp, just going through my journey of personal depression mm. and how that mm. learned so much from the life of Jacob and just the dependency mm. on, on God through the process. And one of the things that one of my litmus tests for reading books is that, can you read it when you're really low and can you read it when you're high and you're enjoying life? Right? I, love that. I think that that's important. Mm. And there are yeah. some books that are like, 
take leadership books, for example, I'm not yeah. going to read them at my lower points no, because they discourage <laughs> and depress me. No more. way. Depressing <laughs> even more. Yep. Uh, and, but your book is one of those rare things where it does fit in both worlds. And I think because it so emphasis, emphasizes the heart of Christ. And I think that's something so powerful about the heart of Christ is that it touches us at our greatest, our highest moments, and then at our lowest. And one of the points you write, you say, the point in, in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. So question for you, um, what, just very simply, what does Christ's approachability mean to you? It means that when I am feeling most guilty and when I have been most stupid, which is a reality defining my present and not only my past, by the way, mm. um, uh, his Excellent. heart is not a little more cooled off towards me. That is when I am most welcome into his presence and actually into his arms and he puts his arm around me and says, hey, Dane, I love you. Let's do this together. Uh, that is what, this is unlike any coach we ever had. Yep. Uh, and so, so it, it's, I, 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 we have to train our hearts to defy the feelings of guilt and shame that actually we rightly feel on our own steam, hmm. apart from yeah. the gospel. I mean, I, Interesting. apart from Christ, I should be guilty. Actually, it feels morally serious and right for me to walk around with guilt feelings all day. I have a lot to be guilty about. Mm. But in Christ, in the gospel, that's reversed. That's not just changed a little bit. That's reversed. And now as, as one of his own members, his own body parts, guys, yeah. if yes. I'm part of his body, I mean, I, I, if I stub my toe, I'm not going to get angry at it and say, well, you know, come talk to me in a week. I'm going to care for it. It's part of me. That's how he feels about his own, uh, his own children. So it's a lifelong journey of retraining our hearts to come to him when we think we should uh, hold back lurking fearful in the back. Wow. Fantastic. I, and as you're saying, like, I think that Dave, my thought is it's so hard to retrain the heart because yeah. all those things that you just said, Dave, we've talked about this off air. I mean, that's, that's been a struggle of mine. You've struggled with that of, of like, how do you retrain? Like, so give me your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, performance mindset, right? Yeah. So yeah. when, when you, when you mess up, you, you don't, you don't, if you're using the coaching metaphor, you're like the coach is ticked. Like I didn't, I didn't perform. I didn't make the shot. You know, as if we're talking hockey illustrations, like I blew it, you know, it, it, there's a performance. How do you, Dane, my question would be like a, from a pastoral perspective, how do you help people, either personal one-on-one -on -one counseling or a, a group of people um, get out of that mindset? Because I feel like there's a lot of people that something happens and they realize they haven't lived up to their holy calling in Christ or something, yeah. and they ghost him. It's like it's like one of their friends. They there's yeah. a, they know there's something between <laughs> right. them, so that we stop texting for seventy two hours or something. And that's exactly from what I'm hearing you say. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants from us in those moments of weakness. 
Yeah, exactly right. Which is what God himself said in Isaiah 57 when he said, I dwell in two places, way up high in the holy place, and place number two, scandal of scandals, way down low with him who is lowly and contrite of heart. Yes. That's actually where he dwells. So I would answer your very good question, Dave, with something that I've learned from my dad, uh, who was a pastor, uh, is still in ministry, but uh, recently retired from the church he was at. And they had a mantra at his church in Nashville of gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. That formula, though it's nothing, it's not formulaic, is how I would want to answer your question for a person in the pew on a Tuesday morning, on a Thursday evening, uh, someone going about their daily life. Lots and lots of immersive exposures to the gospel. It's the whole reason we come to church. It's why we get in discipling relationships. It's why we're reading the scripture, hooking up to the oxygen of scripture every morning, whatever way we can. Lots of gospel, good news for bad people based on the finished work of Christ. Number two, safety. None of us is going to open up and blossom and flower if we feel like um, we're in a place of quiet condemnation. And if I begin to open up who I am, take off the mask, um, we're like seeing enemies where you touch it and it closes right up again real fast. And so we need, we need to give people safety so they can open up. We want people to feel safe because of the finished work of Christ in community is what I'm talking about. Plus time. Don't start the stopwatch. Most people feel like if, if they confess a sin in their church community to one person, to a group of people, then they are instantly put on the clock. And they better be doing better the next month, the yes. next year. Yes. But sometimes we get worse before we get better. And sometimes we'll get worse and then die and never, <laughs> never have gotten better. So yep. what, but no, no one can grow when they feel pressured. That just torpedoes the whole project. Uh, so what we, wanted, we, what we want is gospel plus safety plus plenty of time. That's how we flourish and thrive. I think so just again going back to my illustration so I've shared from a depression standpoint that a lot of the reasons that I've found and what I've dealt with people that have struggled with this in the past or currently struggle with it that's one of the biggest things because yeah. when they share with someone everyone yeah. says well hey I want you to share with me right I want you to tell me your deepest struggles and I want you I want to be there for you but yeah. we unconsciously put people on the clock because if you're not getting better we don't know what to do with a person like that because yeah. it's like okay well uh you should be here, but you kind of feels like you've gone backwards this month. And so right. uh, just a side question here, you know, you write again, I'm, I'm reading a lot of quotes for those of you watching or listening, just go buy the book, then you can have the quotes yourself. But <laughs> only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ, will we leave in our wake everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven and die one day having started, uh, um, startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Got about 10 minutes here. Um, what's God's kindness mean to you? Um, it means that he says to me, uh, hey, Dane, uh, you who are more desperately sinful than you know, and I'm pretty aware of a lot of it, mm -hmm. but it's even worse than I know. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, not come to me, you who feel sufficiently bad for your sins, come to me, you who are improving, as we were just saying. We do want to grow. I believe in growth. I want to grow. 
but that's not what the text says. Come yeah. to me, you who labor and are heavy laden. That's the prerequisite. That's God's kindness. Uh, his, his kindness is his non-clock ticking patience. It's his open heartedness that will not close off the valve. Uh, and of course, we see in a bloody cross, this is nothing philosophical or ethereal or vague or hazy. It's not just words. We see in Jesus on a bloody cross, we see in flesh and blood reality in our human space and time continuum, what God said throughout the Old Testament about what his heart is. So in other words, his kindness, Ezra, his kindness got dressed up in human flesh yes. and went walking around, <laughs> walking around this world. But what does God's kindness mean to me? It means a, a 33-year-old carpenter on the other side of the planet, um, walking around and reaching out and touching lepers and picking up little kids that his disciples were saying, get out of here, and, um, and redignifying prostitutes mm -hmm. with their God-given glory. Um, that, that's God's kindness. Do you feel like um, do we have an opportunity in this moment that seems to be saturated with so much um, anger and divisiveness? Uh, how do you, do you see the opportunity? It's, I don't know, maybe just in the West because I'm here, but I just, I mean, what an opportunity to extend that kindness yeah. as ambassadors of Christ right now. And I think so many of the... Well, I'm sure Ezra might get to it, but some of the criticisms on Twitter and other places of, of some of the work you've done in this book, I just, it doesn't seem to um, mirror that the kindness of Christ that we're called to imitate, you know? And I just, how are we failing? How does it get better? At, we as his body right now embodying some of the things uh, that he is to us. I mean, yeah, yeah. Great question. It's one that I'm wrestling with too, brother. It is a very strange world and time we are living in. And one of the things I'm trying to preach to myself, because I'm not wired in a gentle direction. Um, if anyone ever wasn't, it's me. Uh, ask really? my kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, this book. This, See, I this wouldn't have picked up on that reading it. Uh, so you'd say your general is is not to just sit, sit back and kind of take things easy. Oh, are you kidding? I am type A, stubborn, um, I'm uh, uh, critical, haughty, judgmental. I mean, hmm. just, yeah, no, I, I, no one needs this more than I do. Um, and I, I, I guess I would just say, Dave, in answer to your very urgent, urgent question is um, the world, let, let's startle and surprise the world with unproductive gentleness. What I mean is, um, it, it does not feel productive wow. for me, just in leading my own church, no. to be gentle. How does that help? I've got meetings to lead. I've got people to change. I've got sermons to preach. I've got building to, to care for. I, I, I got to go, 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 and pep talk, pep talk, pep talk. But gentleness is actually what surprises and arrests people. It's what arrested people about Christ, among other things. And actually, when I think about what kind of man do I feel safe with? What kind of person am I drawn to? It's it's not uh, the the lion. It's the lamb. It's not mm. the uh, it's not the uh, the red faced critic. It's the the open hearted, tender, um, gentle, humble, quiet brother. 
I feel safe with that person. So, um, so I would just say, let's, uh, uh, Luther, who was not, he was, I, I was <laughs> no. much more like him. Uh, <laughs> Luth, Luther said gentleness. Oh, what was it? Something like gentleness risks, nothing, uh, risks, little loses, nothing and gains everything. Um, so I think there's, there's a powerful, supernatural, divine, glorious, um, quiet power to comporting ourselves with gentleness that we cannot quantify. And yeah. um, so I want to live more like that. Wow. Yeah. Great stuff. So many different, uh, different quotes that I could, I could read. Um, you, yeah, I've just got a whole list. So, but I want to, want to respect your time. Uh, how would you define, let's just take, take this term. Um, how would you define Christ-likeness? What's that look like for you? Mm. Um, well, it, it doesn't mean that we all look more and more necessarily like one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, some people object that we, why, why should we really all become more Christ-like? Then aren't we going to lose our individuality and all become more like one another? He says, no, actually becoming like Christ brings out the Ezra you were made to be, the Dane I was made to be, the Dave you were made to be in all your glory. Out of Christ, that's when there's monotony and sameness to everyone else. Wow. So, uh, it's, it, so yes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in all of us. But at the same time, uh, just like when one light comes on a dark room and illumines 50 different people and brings out their differences, even though it's one light, when the one light of Jesus Christ is shining on, just to take the three of us, we are going to become more our, the true selves we were destined to be. So um, I, I, I think there can be a simplistic way of thinking about Christ-likeness, where we all are just going around kind of uh, uh, mopily being humble and talking about how bad we are and and uh, then we're being real christ-like no i think to be christ-like is you are I, i'm an intj on the myers-briggs i don't know what my enneagram is i am going to be the most glorious radiant resplendent intj that i was built to be in christ with the fruit of the spirit pouring out of me as i walk with the spirit this is fresh in my mind because i just preached it as i mentioned <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so uh, nothing one-dimensional in answering your question, Ezra, uh, about being Christ-like. How do we get break out of this mindset? Because oftentimes, okay, I'm, I'm a leadership junkie. I've read a lot of John Maxwell stuff. I've read um, lots in, in that spectrum. So you take, you know, Stephen Covey, you take, you know, good to create. It feels like everyone references that. And, and oftentimes what I find church leaders doing, and then the books get passed down to people, is we take it, we take, go to Christ and we say, okay, so this, and then we paint a lens of how Christ looks to the world. So Christ was the perfect leader. Christ was the perfect this. And so if you would, and, and when, when, but I feel like it's just painting one side of Christ, that it's one, mm -hmm. one aspect of him. When you look at gentle and lowly though, yeah. is this different? Do you see this as encapsulating who Christ is, or is this just one of many pictures? Uh, both hand. I mean, on the one hand, it is the, as we say, the only place he talked about his heart. So there it has to be, and Goodwin convinced me of this, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, there has to be something that is uniquely central to what he says about his heart being gentle and lowly. But let's not be reductionistic. This is yeah. a glorious 
Christ. This is an endless Christ. There are regions to Christ we have not yet explored, uncharted territory. When Columbus showed up in, in the Caribbean and said, this is the Indies, he didn't realize there was this whole continent called North America between him and uh, the Indies. And that's what a lot of us do with Jesus Christ. There are whole regions of vast, unexplored, uncharted territory that we're, we, we are just waiting hacking our way through the thicket our whole lives long, continuing to learn more about him. Mm-hmm. But I would just say, brother, I, the, the leadership books, I, I'm learned, I got one from John Cotter here on my desk right now, Leading Change, really helpful stuff. Yep. Uh, but um, when we talk about Christ's likeness, we're talking about character, not skill. We're mm-hmm. talking about who he is, not what he does so much. And so when we refer to Christ's likeness, we don't mean become good at woodworking. We mean you're you're taking on the character, the virtues yes. of his heart, and what pours out of his heart. Yeah. So, as I need to jump in real quick, right there. So, if Jesus' self disclosure is I'm uh, lowly, of, uh, so mm-hmm. does that the corrective that you were bringing in writing? Do you feel like I'll just speak for the Western Church? Maybe do you feel like the Western Church in general is zooming in on certain? aspects of Jesus, which like you said, may be true, but they are zoomed into the point that we're neglecting some other things that maybe you were trying to bring a corrective to in your writing. Um, I don't know is the answer. And I, I okay. know that's not a great answer for podcast, no, okay. but that is the answer. I just don't have a good read. I don't have a sufficiently wide angle lens on the, on the whole church in the West to really meaningfully wade into that. I do believe that Matthew eleven twenty nine. And actually, the whole biblical trajectory that is surfacing in that moment, yeah. because that's not that's not an isolated instance. It is just the one place he talks about his heart. It's reflective of everything he did, and so much in the prophets and everything. I do believe that that has been neglected in our generation, in a way that it wasn't in generations past. Yes, I do believe that, and wanted to wanted to plug that gap. Yeah, that's great. Let's close with this. I want you to share where people can find you online, the best places. But before that answer this last question. Um, the movie series The Chosen is out, and um, lots of our audience have seen that, just depicting the way that that Christ would interact with disciples. And, and I think it's very helpful that it just helps lay a little bit of um, context for what, what you know everyday life might have looked like in that, in that setting. When you think of Christ today, and you think of him doing daily interactions, what would that look like in a, in a, in a context today? How, how does your mind naturally go from that um, painting of a long-haired white Jesus that we have on the wall uh, to what you actually view him as doing today? What does that look like for you? Wow, what an interesting question, Ezra. Well, uh, I would view him conducting himself actually in exactly the same way that he did 2,000 years ago. Lots of cultural differences, but what was he doing back then? Um, he wasn't walking around giving cookie cutter formulaic answers to everyone. He wasn't walking around so much pointing a finger, but putting his arms out wide. He did point a finger to those who thought they were better than others, to actually to the religious PhDs of the day, the seminary profs <laughs> who thought mm. that they were um, uh, on their own virtues a step ahead of everyone else. Um, but what did he do? He walked around and he gave people their glory back and he asked questions and he dealt with each person. He dealt, he didn't, he dealt with each person, um, according to where they were at. It is such a fascinating project 
to work through the Gospels. You said you're meditating on Matthew. I'm sure you're seeing this, Ezra, to work through the Gospels. And he never applies exactly the same approach to two mm. people. It's very distinct and different. So if we were to get off this call, this podcast uh, interaction right now, and the next moment Jesus Christ were talking with David and then Ezra and then me in our offices, it would be a very different conversation, unique mm -hmm. to the, the needs of each of our souls, our current habitual sins, where we are worried and anxious and shouldn't be. I mean, just uh, so so distinct. He understood people. And um, mm. so I think that's how he would walk around it, engaging us today. Best places people can find you? Twitter. Uh, just Dane Orland is the handle. So that'd be the number one place. Gentle and lowly. Uh, link in the show notes below. You can check that out. Thanks so much, uh, Pastor Dane. I really, really appreciate it. A joy to talk to you, Ezra and Dave. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Blessings.